start. So we're we're going through the the God, but uh, uh, words are powerful. Words are emotional. Words can calm. Words can cut. Words can stop or start a war. Uh, Jewish Rabbi Yehuda Berg uh, recently said, "Words." are the singularly most powerful force available to humanity. We can choose to use this force constructively with words of encouragement or destructively use words of despair. Words have energy and power with the ability to help, to heal, to hinder, to hurt, to harm, to humiliate, and to humble. Words, whether spoken or written, have an impact on you and an impact on others. Words express feelings and share knowledge. They can change someone's mood completely and ignite a spark in them or snuff that spark out. Words can melt a father's heart when they're uttered from his daughter's lips. I love you, Daddy. Words can tear down a lifelong friendship when they're spoken in anger. We're through. On November 19th, 1863, President Abraham Lincoln delivered one of, if not the most famous speeches in American history. Uh, The Union victory at Gettysburg was a turning point in the American Civil War, thwarting General Robert E. Lee's invasion of the North. Uh, On that day, a national cemetery was being dedicated near the battlefield in Gettysburg where nearly nearly 51,000 American soldiers, both from the North and the South, lost their lives. Amazingly, President Lincoln wasn't the featured speaker that day. Uh, Noted orator Edward Everett spoke for nearly two hours while Lincoln spoke for a mere two minutes. Lincoln was mistaken in his short speech, though. Uh, In the words of President Lincoln on that day, and and we all have heard it, we probably can, can quote it back, but four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth onto this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty, and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now, we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who have, get, who have here gave their lives that this nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But... In a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave their last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that the government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from this earth. Lincoln's Gettysburg Address was a monumental act. But not only did the world note what he said, the world will never forget those words he said. But 
that wasn't always the case with President Lincoln. He, he, al- he didn't always recognize the power of words. He was known for his sharp wit, uh, and he was known to, to attack his uh, opponents openly in, in letters published in newspapers. In 1842, uh, the state of Illinois actually ran out of money, and it decided it would no longer accept currency, uh, its own printed form currency. Uh, Citizens would only be able to pay their taxes in gold and silver, which most didn't have. You know, obviously this decision was quite unpopular. James Shields, he was the state auditor. He sided with the Democratic Party. Um, I could probably say some things there, but I'm not. Uh, Sided with the Democratic Party on rejecting currency and shuttering the Bank of Illinois. Lincoln was friends with an editor of the San Damo Journal, a man named Simeon Francis. He allowed Lincoln to publish a letter on August 27, 1842, under the false name Rebecca. Uh, It's written from the perspective of an Illinois farm wife whose neighbor can't pay his taxes due to the rejection of state currency. The farmer, who's a man named Jeff, attacks this policy before personally attacking the vain politician James Shields. Lincoln, writing as the farm wife, calls Shields a fool and a liar before mocking him as a womanizer. Shields calls the editor, calls uh, Mr. Francis, and and, uh, demands to know the author's true identity. After learning the author is none other than Abraham Lincoln, Shields mounts his horse, rides to where Lincoln is out on the legal circuit, and demands an apology from uh, Lincoln and a retraction in, in the next day's paper. Without that, Shields said that there would be consequences which no one will regret more than myself. In other words, a duel to the death. Lincoln responded a short time later that day, refusing to retract his statements and taking it a step further, telling Shields that he assumed too many facts for a response to be worth his time. He then ended a response with a veiled threat. The consequence, to which I suppose you allude, would be a matter of as great regret to me as it possibly could be to you. You know, there was a series of letters going back and forth, Shields eventually challenging Lincoln to a duel. So, you know, Lincoln had to accept, keep his honor. Uh, Since he was the one being challenged, he got to set the rules. It was to be fought in Missouri, where dueling was still legal, and the weapon would be the broadsword. So they met on this island, uh, Bloody Island is what it was called. It was a sandbar in the middle of the Mississippi River, right outside Alton, Missouri. Uh, Lincoln, though, knew he had an advantage. He, to demonstrate it, his advantage in both height and reach, he swung his sword over his head and chopped down a high tree branch. It was enough to convince Shields to reconsider the wisdom of battling a much larger Lincoln. The two eventually called a truce, but this is probably the most lurid personal detail or personal incident in Abraham Lincoln's life, but it taught him an, an important lesson about the power of Never again after that point did he write an insulting letter to a newspaper. Never again did he ridicule someone. From that moment on, he almost never criticized anybody for anything. You know, little statements can have a great impact, especially if they're coming from a person of influence. You know, think about it. A leading economist can speak in the stock market and move. Uh, A news reporter will mention the possible shortage of some commodity rush to a store will ensue. We've seen that over the last couple of years. Words have great power. The same is true, actually, the same is truer for the word of God. Hebrews 4.12 tells us, for the word of God is quick 
and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The word of God has great power as we allow it to enter our lives. So tonight, we're going to look at some words. I hope they're going to be a blessing, an encouragement, a challenge to you, as they were to me. In the book of John, um, Jesus is recorded, and I think it's in chapter 6. I didn't write the reference down for this one. But uh, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit, and they are life. Each of the phrases we'll look at tonight, they're in the latter chapters of the book, or the gospel of John. So uh, turn to chapter 21. We're going to see a series of three little words from the lips of our Savior. Let's pray. Grace, Heavenly Father, thank you for this time in your word, Lord. Just uh, help me say tonight what I ought to say. Help uh, me not say what I ought not say, Lord. And just, uh, Lord, help us uh, just uh, see what you have for us from your word, from the lips of your Son, Lord, as they're, as they're recorded here in the Gospel of John. Lord, give us a good night in your word, in your name. Amen. So John chapter 21, verse 22. The first three words I want you to see, <coughs> verse 22, follow thou me. Three directing words, three directing words, follow thou me. Verse 22 says, Jesus saith unto him, if I will that he tarry till I come, what is, it, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. You know, first I want you to notice the curiosity of Peter. So these words that Christ spoke right here are in response to Peter's question just a couple verses earlier. Look at verse then Peter, turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved, following, which also leaned on his breast at supper, and said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? Peter, seeing him, saith to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? Peter's questioning what John, the beloved disciple, will do in the future. But if you read a couple verses earlier, Jesus just gets finished telling Peter, what he's going to do, what lies ahead in his future. And all Peter cares about is what John's going to do. Now, how many times are we, we guilty of the same things? How many times do we fall prey to being more concerned with what's going around with others, with what's going on uh, with, with what others are doing than what we do? You know, but notice Christ's response in his command for Peter, follow thou me. Convicting must this have been for Peter. Uh, the words Christ spoke uh, to Peter and his brother Andrew, uh, we see him in Matthew 4, 19. At the beginning of the ministry, he saith unto them, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. That was his command at the beginning. His command didn't change at the end. Follow thou me. You know, and I, I really believe that's the call to all people. Follow thou me. You know, our role as a Christian is to follow Christ on our journey of life. And Christ's desire is for us, or for, uh, desire is to lead us on that journey. You know, so think about where he leads if we'll follow. First, he leads to the cross for salvation. Romans 3, 24 and 25 tell us, by being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is, is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. Jesus Christ gave up his life on the cross of Calvary so that we can be saved from our sins, from our iniquities, and be redeemed through his blood. But he didn't just save us to save us. 
Christ leads us to the church for service. Ephesians 2.10 tells us we're saved to serve, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. You know, he didn't save us to sit around and do nothing. God saved us to serve him. Are we following him in service? You know, a big part of service is, is our church membership. You know, it's, it's joining the local church. It's being a part of the church that you can serve. Doing things at the local church—that's that service—is doing things for others. Thirty leads to the community for soul winning. I mean, Jesus' initial call to Peter and Andrew was, "Follow me, I'll make you a fishers of men." Jesus said himself that he came to seek and save that which was lost. In Matthew twenty-eight, um, you know, we read the oh-so-familiar Great Commission, but we tend to apply it to foreign missions. But you know, there's a nation right outside our door needs that gospel too. You know, I think sometimes I think we maybe forget or, or maybe we get too comfortable, but our hearts should be stirred every time we go to the grocery store, every time we sit down at a restaurant, every time we complain to our neighbor, there's souls passing us in the aisle. There's souls pouring our coffee. There's souls listening to you gripe that are destined for eternity in hell. be the first to admit it. I'm as guilty as the next guy. But my question is this, are you following Christ and seeking lost souls? Um, and then finally, Christ wants to lead us through the clouds with a shout. First Thessalonians 4.16 says, four, uh, 16 and 17, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. You know, may we live our lives in a way that on the day of his return, we can hear him say, well done. Uh, back to verse 21. Go back a little bit. We're kind of going to work backwards in the book of John. Verse 15. We see three commanding words. Feed my sheep. Uh, verse 15 tells us, so when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, Lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He, uh, talking about Jesus, saith unto him, Feed my lambs. He saith to him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he said, Unto him the third time, lovest thou me? And he said unto, said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus saith unto him, feed my sheep. Now again, Jesus is talking to Peter here. And it seems like a lot of these, these three-word phrases tonight that we'll look at are, are, are directed at Peter. But uh, um, he's talking to Peter. And, and Peter, Jesus really searches Peter's conscience by questioning his devotion. Each time the Lord replied to Peter's affirmation with a command. And each time it's a command to serve someone else. And what Jesus is emphasizing, what he's really trying to drive home, is the fact that would we demonstrate our love for him by serving others. But what's interesting is if you look at it, Christ uses a couple different commands. Verse 15, Jesus tells Peter to feed my lambs. Verse 16 and 17, he says, feed my sheep. 
You know, in these two, they're two distinctly different words. And in those two statements, I believe he indicates two different groups of people with whom he's concerned for their well-being, lambs and sheep, the new believer and the mature believer. In the same view, there are two different words for feed. Uh, in the Greek, uh, verse 15, the word is bosco. That expresses the idea of providing the flock with, flock with food. Say that five times fast. Uh, it means a proper diet. You know, that's essential for spiritual development. You know, first and foremost, it requires regular time in the Word of God. You know, I challenge my teens every week to read God's Word, but don't just read it to get through it. Read it to get something out of it. You know, it doesn't... Reading through the Bible is good, but if you're not getting anything out of it, then it's not good for you. You know, I challenge them. Even for you that's stuck on a verse and you dig so deep into a verse, you're growing because of that verse. Get it into those words. So I challenge them every week that. So I'll challenge you the same thing. Um, but it also means to be here every time the stores are open. You know, you you have to be fed from the word, but the only way to be is what we are tonight. And I know this is kind of preaching to the choir, but got to be under the preaching, of the uh, good preaching of the word. Verses 16 and 17, though, use a different word for feed. The Greek word there is poimanio. That means to tend or to shepherd. And really, this is speaking to proper direction. You know, not only must a lamb or a sheep be fed, but it must be Now, that means listening, following good godly counsel. That means providing biblical direction to our family, our kids, our grandkids. It means giving direction, giving direction through our example, how we live our life. You know, even if you don't know it, you don't realize it, but you think about it, you're influencing, you're directing someone in your way. Maybe a Sunday school class. Maybe it's a neighbor that watches you. Maybe it's a child, a grandchild. Or maybe it's someone you don't even notice watching you, your actions, your behavior. So what direction are you providing? <coughs> so not only are we we to be fed by the word, not only to be properly directed, led by the word, but go back to verse 15 and see our next phrase in that same verse. Verse 15 has three searching words. Lovest thou me? Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? Verse 16, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Simon, verse 17, Simon, son of Jonas, Jonas, lovest thou me? You know, again, we're talking to he's, Jesus is talking to Peter, and during this exchange about feeding his sheep, he also asked Peter three times, Lovest thou me? Do you love me? Peter, do you love me? You know, if Peter was willing to tend to the flock of Christ, he needed to remember something. He needed to remember the greatest commandment, and that's something we must as well. Hold your place here. We'll be back. But turn to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22. Um, this parable here, uh, Jesus is teaching his followers. And, and uh, as, as, as almost certain, every time Jesus taught, there were the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they were there. Um, but they weren't there to learn. They were there to try and trip Jesus in his words. So there's this Pharisee. And uh, kind of double trouble, he was a, a pharisaical lawyer. Um, in an attempt to trip Christ up, asked a question in verse 36. Uh, chapter 22, verse 36 says, 
Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus responds, Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. You know, Jesus, in, in kids' church, you know, a lot of the kids know the in Ten Commandments. Jesus summed up the entire Ten Commandments in, this, in, in these two verses right here. Love. Paul wrote in Romans 13.10 that love is the fulfilling of the law. All of our sin problems, all of our life problems, at their core, are love problems. We don't love God as we ought, and in turn, we can't love others as he commands. You know, one writer wrote that there is no duty to which true love does not incline, nor is there a sin in which true love does not restrain. You know, love is the greatest commandment. Love is also the greatest characteristic uh, Paul writes to the church at Corinth, and now abideth faith, hope, charity. These three, the, ch- uh, the greatest of these is charity. Charity is love in action. When we get saved, we immediately are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. One of the greatest endeavors that the Holy Spirit tr- strives to do is to reproduce in us the character of Jesus Christ. Galatians, Paul wrote in Galatians uh, 5.22, that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. Paul lays out the fruit of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer, and he starts with love. Love is first on that list because everything else is an outpouring of it. And then finally see the love is the greatest constraint. Uh, turn with Second Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. Paul's writing to the church at Corinth here, uh, and, and he says in verse 14, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge, that if one died for all, then, we, uh, then, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they sh- which should live, that which lived should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them, and rose again. Wherefore henceforth know we no man after the flesh, yea, Though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth we him no more. No, know him, know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you, in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. So Paul traveled thousands of miles, and what he's writing here to to the church at Corinth, he traveled thousands of miles across different countries preaching the gospel. As he did, he endured difficulties and trials that God allowed him to endure. But the one thing, that sustained him through all of that was his love for God and his love for a lost soul. You know, love ca- will cause you to gladly do what you would no- do for no other reason. Every other motivation in life will fade. Every other motivation will cause us to lose our zeal. But love for God and love for others will sustain us in a life of service. Love for God will motivate us to fashion our lives to serve him. 
Are we obedient to these searching words? Are we following the greatest commandment? Is our life marked by the greatest characteristic? Is our service motivated by the greatest constraint? You know, so we've seen three directing words. We've seen three commanding words. We've seen three searching words. Come back to John chapter 21. Verse 12, and see three encouraging words. Come and dine. John 21, chapter 12, or John chapter 21, verse 12 says, Jesus saith unto them, Come and dine. And none of the disciples durst ask him, Who art thou, knowing it was the Lord? In this account, Christ was just crucified. He's risen from the grave. He's appeared to the disciples both in the upper room and on the shore of the Sea, uh, of, the sea of Tiberias. That's where he is now. Peter decides to go fishing. He's joined by other disciples, and they toil through the night. Their efforts are in vain, though. Verse 21, or verse 3 of this chapter tells us they caught nothing. In the morning, Jesus appears. The disciples don't recognize him, but Jesus appears and tells them to try the right side of the ship. They follow his, they follow his instruction. They catch so many fish, they can't bring the nets in. Uh, Peter then realizes, um, uh, r- realizes it's Jesus, and he you know, takes and throws off his coat and, and goes after him. Think about it for a minute, though. Peter goes fishing, and, and I believe that at this time we can categorize Peter as weary. He was physically weary from toiling, laboring all night, and catching nothing. He was emotionally weary from his repeated failures. He was mentally weary from the effort to try to figure out why he had fallen and denied Christ three times and what that meant for his future. He was weary. all been there 100% totally completely exhausted but look how Jesus replies come and dine you know first this tells us of Jesus of his perceptions Jesus's perceptions he knows Hebrews 4:15 reminds us we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities you know he knows what we're going through he understands the frailty of our flesh and bones the simple invitation, though, reminds us of his, of his passion. You know, he cares. Not only was he aware that Peter was weary, he was touched by it. You read the parable of the Good Samaritan, and he was uh, the priest. He knew of the man's man's plight, right? The Levite was curious. He kind of, what's going on over there? Uh, the the only, only the Samaritan, though, cared for the man's plight. Jesus is more than aware. He's moved by the condition of those in need, and he to get involved. But then finally we see in the last word, his provision. He provides. What Peter and the other disciples needed, Jesus provided. And what's interesting, if you read through the book of John, it's almost like any situation you can face in life is satisfied by the miracles that Jesus uh, performed in this that are, that are reported in the book of John. The wedding party at Cana had no drink. The nobleman's son had no help. The impotent man had no strength. The multitude had no bread. In the storm, the disciples had no power. The blind man had no sight. Lazarus had no life. But Jesus met every need. You know, in this account, Peter's need, I believe, was twofold, physical and spiritual. And Jesus met both. Have you grown weary? waited 
down by the cares and troubles of this world. But he said that to the Jews too. Peter was. But then he penned this. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. That's 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. Jesus Christ cares, and Jesus Christ can meet every single need you have. Now look at chapter 20, verse 19. Back a page in my Bible. Verse 19 tells us, Then the same day at the evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. Three cheering words, peace unto you. I have to address the elephant, fourth word here. Uh, the word be, you'll see it's italicized though. Um, it means it wasn't in the original text, in the original Greek. It was added for clarity during translation but I'm going to count this as a three-word phrase. Christ said three words. All across the globe, people seek peace. Billions of dollars are spent investing in armies in the pursuit of peace. Busy diplomats go from capital to capital in attempts to secure or gain peace. The United Nations was established for peace, but here's the truth. while there can't be true peace on an international or a national or really even a local level, there can be on a, a personal level, which is exactly what Christ offers. Now, this verse took place, this is one of the first appearings, uh, appearances after Jesus' resurrection. The attitude of this gathering was one of fear. It says itself, um, they, they were fear of the Jews, fearful of the Jews. They were fearful of the future. Jesus appeared and his message was simple. Peace unto you. Now there's two, two aspects of the peace that Jesus offers. Romans 5.1 Therefore being justified by faith we, faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first thing. There's peace with God. Before we got saved because of our sinful nature we're enemies of God. But now through the work of Jesus Christ We've been reconciled to him. This is the eternal peace of God purchased by the blood of his son that was shed on the moment, of, uh, shed on the cross of Calvary. That eternal peace is secured the moment someone trusted in Jesus as their savior. This peace once and for all settles someone's alienation from God. But not only is there peace with God, which that can only come through the work of Jesus Christ. Works can't do it. Nothing can do it but the work of Jesus Christ. There is the peace of God. And that's where our role comes in. Just as the disciples in the upper room right here, they were beset by fear. It's easy for us to allow fear to overtake our hearts. You know, the world which we live is, is in a constant state of change. Our future is uncertain. It's easy to be overcome with fear. But according to 2 Timothy, God hath not given us a spirit of fear. Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts. You know, the word rule here gives the idea of arbitrating or governing. The peace of God is supposed to govern our, in our life and direct our thoughts and actions. You know, when trouble comes, when uncertainty arises, when doubt starts creeping in, we 
should defer to the peace of God to lead us. Like, do we turn to worry? Do we turn to fear? Or do we rest in patient confidence? The peace of God declares that God is in control and we can trust him. And peace rules in our hearts. Now, that's something the unbeliever cannot know. You know, if you never make peace with God, you can't experience the peace of God in your heart. Question then is how do we as a believer experience the peace of God ruling in our heart? Well, Isaiah tells us, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in me. You know, only when our minds are centered on God can we experience his peace. When we focus on God, we're reminded that he has everything under control. And as a result, we place our trust in him, he'll do all things well. And we rest in his goodness. So we've seen in John three directing words. We've seen three commanding words, three searching words. We've seen three encouraging words. And these three cheering words. Finally tonight, back in the book of John, chapter 19, verse 30. And see the final three-word phrase tonight, three Precious words. It is finished. You know, this final phrase from our Savior's lips comes at the, really the precipice of his greatest trial. But it's also the moment of his greatest victory. Verse 19, or uh, chapter 19, verse 30 tells us, When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. With these three little words, our Savior gave up the ghost, took his last breath, and slipped into the cold embrace of death. But death would only hold him for three short days. Because three days after this final breath was taken, he broke those chains and he rose from the borrowed tomb, triumphant over death, over hell, and over the was he speaking of when he said it was finished? I believe first he was speaking of three things. The consummation of prophetic scripture, which are now complete. You know, from the days of Adam all the way through the time of Malachi, the prophets described step by step the humiliation and the suffering Messiah is going to endure. But one by one through the life of Christ, each of these prophecies were you know, second, I think he spoke of uh, the completion of his personal suffering. From the very beginning of his life on earth, the shadow of the cross covered each step he took. He knew from the day he was born what his future held. Turn to Psalm, chapter 88. Psalm isn't the book we think of that has messianic prophecies. Psalm 88, chapter, uh, sorry, Psalm 88, verse 15, uh, tells us, and this is a messianic prophecy, this is directly talking about Christ. I am afflicted and ready to die from my youth up. While I suffer thy terrors, I am distracted. He, he knew from a youth what his future held. You know, there was that anticipation of the cross, and he knew that brought suffering. 
but the reality of the cross is far greater abnormal. I mean, think of the days leading up to Jesus Christ hanging, bloody, beaten to a nearly unrecognizable form. The hours that he spent in Gethsemane, the betrayal by a kiss, appearing before Caiaphas, Pilate, Herod, and Pilate again. The journey carrying his own cross down the Via Dolorosa. The nails driven in his hands, his feet. The scorn, the ridicule, just the disgust of those gathering at the foot of the cross. But perhaps the greatest agony of all, the turning of away of his father as he became sin. Man and devil did their worst. The storm of God's wrath is calmed. The sword of justice was sheathed. The darkness had ended. The wages of sin were paid, and divine holiness had been fully satisfied. With a voice that echoes through the universe, our Savior cried, It is finished. You know, and finally, Christ spoke of a perfect sacrifice. Ever since the Garden of Eden, a blood sacrifice was, re- was required. Required for Adam. Required for Passover. Required throughout the Bible. The writer of Hebrews tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. No matter the time, No matter the sacrifice, it was never enough. But all that changed on the cross. Jesus paid the entire cost of sin on that hill at Golgotha. As as the hymn writer put it, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Never have three more precious words been said as it is finished. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for these phrases from the Gospel of John that that your son spoke, Lord, that uh, give us encouragement, give us, Lord, but also give us a precious gift, Lord, the salvation through his blood. Lord, thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you for the price you paid for our sins, Lord, that we don't have to pay that 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 cost, Lord. Lord, give us a, a safety as we travel home. Just thank you for um, the people here tonight, Lord. In your name, amen. You are dismissed.